This is not the last Sunday of Epiphany. Next Sunday is the last Sunday of Epiphany. But next Sunday is also Transfiguration Sunday, and we'll be turning our attention to the story of Jesus' transfiguration. There's no I am statement in that story, but it's quite an appropriate ending to a season dedicated to the discovery of who Jesus is. This week, though, we are going to once again ask ask Jesus the question that we have been asking him for the past seven weeks. Who are you? During this season of Epiphany, we have been operating on the assumption that the best way to get to know a person is to ask them to tell you about themselves. And Jesus has not disappointed. We have been asking him, Who are you? And he has responded, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door and the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this week we ask Jesus one last time during this season of Epiphany, Who are you, Jesus? And he replies, I'm the true vine. The true vine. It's a claim that begs a question, and the question that it begs is this. Who's the false vine then? If there was no other vine, then Jesus would have merely said, I'm the vine. But throw the word true in there, and it turns his claim into a contrast, a a challenge to anyone else who claims to be the vine. If Jonathan Himes, who's, I don't know if he's here this morning, if Jonathan Himes were to tell people in private conversations around the church that his name is Jonathan, then they would think he was merely introducing himself. But were he to start telling people that he's the true Jonathan? then you would rightly understand him to be suggesting that I am an imposter to our shared name, a false Jonathan, undeserving of the good name we share. The word true totally changes the dynamic. And Jesus, well aware of that, declares, I am the true vine. He's contrasting himself with another vine, a false vine. And we read about this vine in our Old Testament passage this morning in Isaiah 5. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Israel was the vine to whom Jesus was comparing himself in John 15. The vine, or vineyard, was a common image to describe Israel, and it's found throughout all of Scripture. You can find Israel being called a vine in Psalm 80, Isaiah 27, Ezekiel 15, 17, and 19, and even in the 12th chapter of Mark's Gospel. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and immediately those who heard him would have understood that he was claiming to be Israel, the one true Israelite, accomplishing in himself a single man the purposes for which God had originally created an entire nation. Why did God create the nation of Israel out of the one man, Abraham? Why did he plant that vine, that nation in the earth, watering it and tending it and encouraging it to grow? He did all of this because the nation of Israel was to reflect his glory in the world and serve as an instrument of his blessing to the nations. As the vine spread throughout the world, the purity and the justice of God and, uh, expressed in this people was supposed to make the world wonder, what is different about you? And the answer Israel was supposed to provide was our God. Our God is what is different about us. All the glory is his. But that question was never asked of them because purity and justice were absent in Israel. Again, Isaiah 5. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, 
but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. There was neither justice or righteousness to be found in Israel. I mean, look at the who's who from Israel's history even. And every single one of them is a disappointment at some level. Abraham? Abraham and his wife, Sarah, did a lot of traveling in their day. But traveling with Sarah always made Abraham a bit nervous. Apparently, Sarah was beautiful. So beautiful that Abraham feared for his life. He was scared that someone might kill him in order to have Sarah. So he asked Sarah to tell anyone who asked that she was his sister. But if she was his sister, then she was also available. And twice, twice, Abraham allowed his wife to be taken into the home of another man. Abraham sacrificed his wife's dignity and humanity in order to preserve his own flesh. Isaac, Abraham's son? Well, let's just say the apple didn't fall far from the tree with Isaac, because Isaac did the exact same thing as Abraham, passing his beautiful wife, Rebecca, off as his sister in order to save his own skin when traveling in a foreign land. Jacob, Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson, Jacob was a schemer and a bit of a weasel. Moses, Moses was a murderer, that's right. The man to whom God delivered the Ten Commandments, one of those commandments being, thou shalt not murder, was himself a murderer. Is there any clearer picture of grace than that? David? David was also a murderer, but he added the sin of adultery to his resume. Solomon? Well, let's just say Solomon was a man of excess in all things. I could go on, but the point is that even the standouts within Israel infected the vine with blight and disease, which as an aside should really affect the way we read the Bible, shouldn't it? If we're reading the stories found in the Bible as moral examples, asking ourselves, What did they do, and what was the outcome, in order to learn how we ourselves are to act, then we are in for some confusing answers, and quite frankly, reading the Bible incorrectly. Abraham and Isaac both sacrificed their wives, and they became rich as a result. Jacob was a schemer, but received Isaac's blessing. David was a murderer and an adulterer, and how do you remember David? A man after God's own heart. His is the line through which Jesus himself entered the world. The Bible is not a handbook of morality, but an intelligent, complex story about God's historical redemption of fallen humanity through Jesus Christ. Most of the characters in the Bible, even the good characters, are morally compromised. So the question cannot be, how do I learn to behave? But how does this story point me to Jesus? And if you find Jesus and come to love him from what you learn about him in these stories, then he will transform you by his love. By his spirit, he will make you morally pure from within. But it's always about Jesus, Old Testament or New Testament. It's always about him. And the question that should always be on our minds is, where are you, Jesus? And as we turn to the story of Israel, the vine which God planted in the earth, we ask that question, where are you, Jesus? And the answer is found in the longing which the story creates within us. It begins with a grand vision. For the vine. The vine is going to spread over all the earth into every nation, carrying God's justice and righteousness, his blessing with it. But the grand vision for Israel, the vine fizzles, and the story does not end the way that everyone hoped it would. Israel did not produce justice and righteousness, but corruption and violence. Neither did Israel reach out into all the world, but they became stingy with their love, drawing back into themselves like a turtle into its shell. 
The fruit dried on the vine, the leaves withered, and the branches became brittle. So God, whom Jesus tells us is the vine dresser, the person taking care of the vine, went about his work of pruning. And in Israel's case, it was more like hacking. He cut back the dead growth and shriveled grapes until he found in all of Israel a single sign of life, a hope that he might not have to dig up the entire vine altogether. In all of Israel, there was one man who was faithful, just, and righteous, a man who didn't disappoint like all the other shining stars of Israel, a man who could and would fulfill God's intention for the nation. This man was, of course, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the true vine. When God pruned all of Israel, only Jesus remained. In the one man lived the hope of the world, the only true Israelite. And through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus fulfilled the purposes for which God had created Israel in the first place. Why did God plant Israel as a vine in the world? To reflect his glory and serve as an instrument of blessing to the nations of the world. We've said this already. But is there anything more glorifying to God than when a person stubbornly entrusts their life to God despite experiencing defamation, abuse, physical violence, to hang on a Roman cross, dying of asphyxiation, and still address God as my God? Yes, he was asking a difficult question, why have you forsaken me? But he asked it from the position of a relationship, my God. And it makes you wonder, who is this God? That Jesus would suffer so greatly and yet refuse to give him up. He was more important to Jesus than even his own body and life a fact that thwarts our great adversary and causes the angels and saints to marvel. Jesus glorified God in his life and in his death. And Jesus suffered in his flesh for the sake of the world, something Abraham and Isaac were unwilling to do for even their own wives. His death resulted in a great harvest. If you search all of Israel's history, Jesus alone was the only Israelite who didn't deserve to be hacked back from the, line, uh, from the vine. His was a life of perfection. He is God incarnate in the flesh. And yet on the cross, he was hacked back, cut off. Why? Because if he wasn't, then you would be. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, the lives of all these men were recorded in Scripture, the good with the bad, the beautiful with the ugly. And in every story, we can sit back and point to the character flaws or moral failure that we see there. But can you imagine for one second if your life was recorded and written down? If someone who had no problem laying the ugly things out there set about writing a biography of your life, I think of this often, but never too long, because it makes me shudder. It makes me more gracious towards our mothers and fathers in the faith, but it makes me shudder to think of the picture that would emerge. If anyone is worthy of being cut off, it is me. And it's every single person in this room, and yet Jesus says, I'll be cut off for you. In order to spare you from the judgment you deserve, I'll be thrown away like a dried up shriveled branch. I'll take your judgment on myself. But when Jesus' body descended into the earth, it took root there like a seed. And in three days, his body burst back to life, and from him a vine began to grow, and a great harvest began to bloom. 
Through the death and resurrection of Jesus came a great harvest, a harvest not of grapes, but of people, men and women whose lives and forgiveness are organically dependent upon Jesus, the true vine. Just like the branches on an actual grapevine draw nutrients from the vine to which they are attached, Christians receive from Jesus all that is necessary for life and for faith. In Jesus, the one true Israelite, men and women from every nation have been grafted through faith into him, the true vine. In him we are forgiven, and in him we are accepted by God, and in him we are called to a life of holiness. In the rest of our passage this morning, there is a lot of language about abiding and bearing fruit, because Jesus is teaching his disciples and us how life looks, or at least should look, when you're living on the vine. How should the life of the Christian look after having been given life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? How does that change a person? Well, life in Christ should be fruitful. But before we explore what kind of fruit the Christian should be bearing, whether a banana is truly a Christian fruit or not, it's important to state what you already know. Fruit is a product, a result. Fruit is the product of a healthy plant. Children are the product of the union between a man and a woman. Dizziness is the product of spinning around too fast in circles. Smoke is the product of fire. Drowsiness is the product of sermons. (laughs) The product does not influence the circumstances of its creation, but flows out of that creative act. The product is a sign testifying to some greater reality. Where there is smoke, there is fire, as the saying goes. And Jesus is saying that fruit is the product that should be present in every man and woman who has been given life through Jesus, the true vine. Fruit in the life of the Christian is proof that you exist in the vine. It's a comfort to the Christian. This is what Jesus says in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit is not the foundation of a Christian's life in Christ, The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is alone the foundation, but fruit is the natural product of that life in Christ. And the absence of fruit in the life of anyone who claims to know and love Jesus should be concerning. Where there is no smoke, there is likely not any fire either. But what is this fruit? And perhaps it's surprising to you, it certainly is to me, that A passage emphasizing the importance of fruit in the life of the Christian never once explains what that fruit is. Isn't that surprising? And yet, I bet that you have been listening this entire time with a specific idea of what that fruit is in your mind. Jesus doesn't need to define it because you already know what it is. In fact, the whole world already knows what that fruit is because it's what everyone wants, right? It's love. It's joy. It's peace. Kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Everyone wants this fruit. And everyone has a different theory about how to get it in your life. How to make your life produce this good fruit. But the problem is that we've forgotten the obvious. Fruit is a product. It does not exist on its own. We've become like the farmer and his wife who had a goose who laid golden eggs. You probably know this story already. It's a fable from the famous Mr. Aesop. A farmer and his wife were barely getting by on the money they earned, selling eggs and butter. Then a miracle happened. The wife was collecting eggs from the hens and geese when she noticed that one egg was particularly heavy. 
When she examined it, she found it to be made of solid gold. We're rich, she cried as she ran to show her husband. Every few days, the goose would lay another golden egg, and soon the farmer and his wife were wearing expensive clothes, building onto their farm and hiring servants. But for every golden egg the goose laid, the couple would spend two eggs worth of gold. One day, they realized that they owed everyone money. I know, said the farmer. Let's cut open the goose and take out all the gold at once. Good idea, said his wife. Here's the knife. You do it. The farmer wasted no time catching the goose and slaughtering it, but when he cut it open, he found it to be just an ordinary goose. Now, Aesop tells, tells us that this is a story about greed, which it is, but it's also a great picture of how the world, in an attempt to find peace or joy or self-control, has neglected God, the goose, the source of all those good things, and has been left unsatisfied and empty. In pursuing fruit, we've neglected the source And Christians are just as guilty of this as the rest of the world. In an effort to make Christianity attractive, we say things like, you want joy or peace in your life? You want self-control? Then come to Jesus. But don't you see we're making fruit the goal, just like the rest of the world? But what does Jesus say? Abide in me. Cling to me. Abide in me, the true vine. And fruit will be the natural result. This is what he says in verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Abide in Christ and you will know joy and peace. Your life will come to be characterized by faithfulness, self-control, kindness, goodness, gentleness. But this fruit only comes through pruning. And pruning only has its intended effect if a person is living on the vine, if they're abiding in Christ. It may seem counterintuitive, but... In order to get the juiciest, tastiest, prize-winningest fruit out of a plant, a gardener must cut it back. Every year, the branches have to be cut back in order for the best fruit to appear during harvest. But because the branches are connected to the vine, drawing life and nutrients from the vine, they survive the pruning and put out fruit. The pruning is for the purpose of producing more fruit, as verse 2 says. This means, therefore, that a person learns joy through sorrow. A person learns peace through conflict. A person learns gentleness through frustration. God is pruning you. But fruit is the result only for those who are living on the vine, clinging to Christ amidst the sorrow, conflict, frustration, depression. If you pursue the fruit apart from Christ, you'll be either unwilling to be pruned, or when pruned, no fruit will come of it. Sorrow will overwhelm you. Frustration will only bring forth anger. Conflict will breed anxiety and fear. But Jesus is greater than all these things. And through him and through those things, he will transform you. Cling to him and he will remake you. In fact, when you abide in Jesus through the pruning of life, the strangest thing will happen. You'll no longer care that much about the fruit. The fruit will be there but you'll stop being obsessed with it and will instead be satisfied with Jesus alone. You'll begin to think like him, live like him, want the things he wants. This is why Jesus can say what he says in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish. You're crazy if you think Jesus gives his permission to any old person. No, he tells this to the person who has clung to him through the pruning of life. 
and been transformed so that her desires, her will, her hopes and dreams are the same as Jesus's. She can ask whatever she wants because she's asking only in line with what Jesus wants. She no longer seeks her own peace, but the peace of the world. She no longer seeks revenge for herself, but reconciliation. She no longer bites back, but forgives. She doesn't live for the fruit, but for Jesus. Abide in Jesus, and you'll be transformed. No longer enslaved to the pursuit of fruit like the rest of the world. You'll be content even as you are pruned, for you know that in Christ God is bringing out fruit in your life, a comfort to you. But how do you abide? What does that even mean? Jesus teaches us how to abide in verses 9 and 10. Abiding is about love and obedience. His love and our obedience. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father loved Jesus, so Jesus loves us. When Jesus was dead in the grave, the Father loved him and gave him new life. When Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death, praying alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, the love of the Father was with him. Jesus was utterly dependent upon the Father, and the Father never disappointed him. This is how Jesus loves you, dead or alive, in danger or in safety, whether you got your act together or not. Jesus' love is constant and will never disappoint He was cut off, hacked back for you. That is a love totally different from any love we will ever experience in this world. And if you allow yourself to be loved by Him, then His love will preserve you in Him even during the hardest times of life. Nothing can separate you from this love. And if you want to experience how much He loves you, then obey Him. It's in obedience that we learn of His love. Obey his commandments, and you realize that every word he has spoken to us has been for our good. He does not make demands on us in order to flex his power, but to show us the way of life, that we might flourish. A child may throw a fit that his mother doesn't let him eat ice cream for breakfast, but she made that rule out of love for him and love for his stomach. One day the child will understand. Obey him when it is difficult, painful, at a loss to yourself even, and one day you too will realize it's always been love. In obedience, we learn of his love. My brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, the one true Israelite, loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. Remind yourself daily of that love. Abide in him. Seek him for himself, and you'll be able to endure all things, the pruning of life even, and your life will produce fruit that brings comfort and confidence to your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, Abide With Me, hymn number 642 in your hymnals.